Well, hello, everyone, and I hope the summer is going well and that your July is going even better. Um, by the way, we officially are in the dog days of summer here in the northern hemisphere, at least. That starts in early mid-July. And did you know who the month of July is named after? Well, let's see, July, as in Julius, as in Caesar. Anyway, on to our sports dedication for what's the start of episode 112. This week, back in 1947, on July 16th to be exact, The Rock and the Man of Steel squared off in Chicago for their second of three epic bouts in the ring. The Rock was New York's Rocky Graziano, not to be confused with Rocky Marciano, who we dedicated episode 100 to. And the Man of Steel hailed from the steel town of Gary, Indiana, the great Tony Zale. These were two of the best fighters in the 1940s. Um, Their trilogy of fights took place within 21 months. Venues went from Yankee Stadium to Chicago to Newark, New Jersey. I think you know by now that I love boxing, and I've said it in the past that when this sport is done right, which unfortunately isn't as often as I would like, it is the best of sports. And I love nothing more than two epic generational fighters going head-to-head more than once. Boxing is full of great trilogies. We talked about Ollie Frazier and their trilogy on a prior dedication way, way back in far middle history. Well, Zale Graziano is just as good of a trilogy. Now, Zale, he was a two-time world middleweight champion, one of the greatest punchers of all time. And uh, they met, he and Graziano, three times for that middleweight crown. They just weren't your run-of-the-mill matches. Oh, no. Um, Three bouts that were among the most brutal and exciting middleweight championships that you'll ever see of all time. Um, The first one took place in Yankee Stadium in 1946. This was after Zale had served in World War II. He was over 30, I want to say 33 years old. He had been inactive for about four years, so it's fair to say he was a bit rusty. Graziano was on a winning streak and in his prime, and after flooring Graziano in the first round, Zale took a savage beating from Graziano and was on the verge of losing the fight by TKO. However, Zale rallied. Knocked out Rocky in the sixth round to retain the title. The first fight was just simply outstanding. They had a rematch a year later in 1947, this week in July, uh, in Chicago. And in many ways, it was a mirror image of their their first fight, almost like a flip in the same script, but with the roles, of course, being reversed. Because in that second fight, Rocky was battered around the ring. He suffered a closed eye and appeared ready to lose by a knockout. But then Graziano rallied and knocked Zale out in the sixth round, becoming middleweight champion of the world. Fight was almost stopped because of Graziano's eye, which would have changed, of course, boxing history and denied Graziano the title. Now, their last and third fight, that was in New Jersey in 1948, the next year. Um, Zale won. He regained his crown, winning the match by a knockout in a third round. Not just any knockout. Um, Rocky Graziano was knocked unconscious. And this fight was Zale's swan song with his abilities quickly falling off after that, uh, that third fight with Rocky Graziano. Now, Rocky commented that years later, he would wake up in a cold sweat, having had the recurring nightmare of being back in the ring with Zale, who he said really was a man of steel. Uh, the first two fights those two had were among the greatest matches ever. But sadly, there is no film archive of either. Only the third is captured on film. It's, it's pretty grainy, but it is on film. Uh, But you really don't need to see the film. The still photos uh, from those first two fights convey the intense ferocity and the sacrifice each fighter made. Uh, One could argue that neither came out a winner physically, 
uh, because uh, they both paid a huge price. But I definitely will say they both came out winners in the heart department for sure. Now, here's a neat piece of trivia about uh, Tony Zale, the Man of Steel. So Zale was originally cast to play himself in a movie about Rocky Graziano, which was titled Somebody Up There Likes Me. And according to director Robert Wise, Paul Newman, who had the lead playing Rocky, um, was hesitant to fully shadow box Zale during rehearsals. Newman was scared to death that Zale uh, would reflexively punch him and knock him out if Newman hit him too hard or if things got too intense. Uh, but the director, you know, he felt the fight scenes needed to be intense. So it was decided to replace Zale with actor Cortland Shepard for the fight scenes. And that's sort of ironic. You got a real life boxer who's supposed to be playing himself uh, during the fight scene of the movie, except when the fight scene comes up, he's too good at it, too realistic. So you bring an actor in um, to sort of mimic the real thing. Yeah, nothing better in sport, as I said, than when boxing is done right. The Zale Graziano trilogy, the second bout occurring this week back in 1947, is up there with the best that the sweet science has to offer. Thus, it serves as a fitting dedication for episode 112. Off now to our connections. Boxing done right, the best. Boxing done wrong, ugly. Same with journalism. And journalism sure isn't the noble profession it once was. Remember, freedom of the press was viewed as a necessary protection to our republic by the founders when constructing the Constitution. Unfortunately, today, the press and the media have morphed from the objective check and balance on government to its unofficial propaganda agency, at least as long as the administration and executive powers of leftist persuasion. Sometimes the media's obsession on cheerleading certain causes comes across as ridiculous to anyone paying attention. Allow me to provide a specific example. I was stuck in an airport terminal one morning recently, and a TV in the waiting area was playing one of the major network's morning news shows. I'll reference air quotes around news because it was an objective news. It was almost like a paid program. Not to sell a product, mind you, but to sell a problem and to sell its causes, and of course, to sell its cure. So let's walk through all three so you can see how far the media has devolved. Now, the problem, that was climate change, and the segment was titled Protecting Our Planet. The topic that morning was how the existential threat of climate change is posing great risk for Floridians. We just know, we just sense that storms and hurricanes are getting more frequent and more severe. The meteorologist doesn't offer any data to back that up, he just has an innate sense for it. Then the talking head reporter on the ground in Florida is telling a tale of woe, always tying each problem back to climate change. Homeowners will have their houses leveled. Flood insurance is skyrocketing to unbelievable and unaffordable levels. The working poor and middle class are being disproportionately hit. And then before the reporter turns it back to the studio, she once again references how Florida is ground zero for climate change's growing destruction. Reporter is likely a journalism major with little science background or knowledge of climate. And then the studio anchors in those designer suits that uh, use that solemn tone reporters use for tough stories to say that they hope there's time enough left to turn things around to protect us and to save Florida. So that's the problem part. Then there's the cause of the problem part of the story, which is basically a hit piece part because the reporter's they never come out and say it directly, but the easy to decipher inference is that the current governor of Florida doesn't care about climate change and doesn't care about the poor or middle class 
and the Florida is falling apart at the seams, both socially and physically. So listening to this news story, you would think that Florida is the last state in the union someone would want to live in, which of course is the opposite of the reality. Look, I'm not a DeSantis disciple, and I'm still assessing and making up my mind, but this so-called news story by one of the big three networks on the morning show was a joke. So obvious a one that it probably helped, if anything, DeSantis with fence-sitters and undecideds like myself. And then after the problem and the subsequent cause part of the story or hit piece, well, then comes the finale, the solution, the answer, the cure. And that's more government, of course, government control of flood insurance, government assistance to the poor, however poor is defined. And by the way, the wider the definition, the better. So government can control more. Um, Using the whole of government, of course, to tackle climate change ASAP so we don't all perish and Florida doesn't sink into the sea next week. More federal government, to be exact, and more leftist controlled administrations running the federal government, to be even more exact. Yeah, the, uh, the 10-minute or so feature on protecting our planet was typical of what media has become, a purveyor of monsters that serve a purpose, which in this case is climate change, an attack dog that goes after entities, thoughts, or individuals who don't fit the ideological filters of the left, and a cheerleader for big government and how it will surely make all that ails you and society and the planet, for that matter, much, much better. One final funny note um, to this morning news show that I was stuck watching in the airport terminal. The very next feature after the protecting the planet or protecting our planet, uh, Florida nonsense, a story about UFOs. And I got to tell you, the UFO piece was actually more objective than the protecting our planet, Florida hit piece, because at least that story on UFOs discussed how optical illusions play a role in UFO sightings. Funny, as I said, but also troubling because this is American media in 2023. How did it come to this? For sure, all you seem to hear these days from media and its brothers in arms is that constant chatter about the climate crisis, how sea levels are rising, the temps are boiling, and the end of times is upon us. Unless, of course, we follow the prescriptions of the left under code red policies. But here's a connection that will provide you, constant listener, a dose of science, in fact, on this episode of The Far Middle. Now, it might run up against the science, but so be it. The atmosphere has been warming since 1700, which, by the way, is about 150 years before the advent of the Industrial Revolution and the widespread use of fossil fuels. There was the Little Ice Age, which peaked around 1700, where temperatures were cold, crops failed, and people starved. Warming since 1700 has helped humans quite a bit when compared to the Little Ice Age. And before the Little Ice Age, We had the medieval warm period around 1000 AD, and it is a fitting name because it accurately describes what the climate was like then. It was so warm that Vikings farmed in Greenland. And before that, and before the Dark Ages, we had the Roman warm period from a few hundred years before to a few hundred years after the birth of Christ. Scientists have determined during the Roman warm period, the Mediterranean was almost four degrees warmer on average than today. And get this, sea levels were three to seven feet higher than today. And during that warm period, the Roman Empire, it grew and it thrived. When the Roman warm period ended, the climate got cold and arid, and not coincidentally, the Roman Empire collapsed. 
Yeah, a little bit of uh, history and science. It always spices up a far middle episode. And we can move on now with that discussion behind us. And we talked about this in prior episodes, how that tackling climate change is a scheme that's utilized in many ways by the left as a convenient opportunity or, or perhaps even a pathway to grow the state and impose control over the individual. So CO2 or temperature or climate, they're not what truly the left is fretting about. They serve only as opportunistic conduits to achieve the left's much bigger aim strategically. We saw a similar situation unfold with how pandemic was managed by government and the left. Again, another opportunity under cover of protecting the public. And when one thinks about what type of state control the left prefers over society, the bigger the form of government, the better. So big local government, it's going to be better than minimal government. State government is better than local government. Federal or national government is superior to state or regional government. And then global government is best of all. Which brings us to the next connection, the theme of the Great Reset. Now, what is the Great Reset? Well, the concept was hatched by none other than Klaus Schwab, the godfather of Davos and a proponent of the New World Order as dictated by left-leaning global government. He co-authored a book titled COVID-19, The Great Reset. Michael Rechtenwald wrote a great piece summarizing the concept of the book. And although it looks as if everything The Great Reset advocates for, I'm against, I plan on giving the book a read. Why? Because from what I can tell, it serves as a blueprint or roadmap for the left. Know thy enemy, constant listener, know thy enemy. Now, the idea of the Great Reset is that pandemic exposed the flaws of capitalism, which should put one on notice at the outset. This is going to get to be a concept that effectively is an assault on the individual and the free market and Western Republican democracy. The Great Reset's lineage ties back to the early 1970s when Schwab founded the World Economic Forum, a.k.a. Davos. And the term Great Reset, I suppose, is borrowed by Schwab from the phrase coined by another author, Florida, uh, coming out of the global financial crisis in 2008-2009, where Florida viewed certain events as step change points in society or history. The World Economic Forum, under the leadership of Schwab, began to think about how possible pandemics and things like climate change, how they could be managed in a way where national or global governments took the lead and ultimately control of societies. Then an actual pandemic hit, wouldn't you know it, and we all saw how that very thing happened with regard to government taking control. Once government hit, um, Schwab promptly published his book. What are his views when it comes to the Great Reset? Well, listen to his words. I'm going to quote him here. We should take advantage of this unprecedented opportunity to reimagine our world. Now, the unprecedented opportunity he speaks of was COVID-19 and the pandemic. Again, it never was about human health or CO2 when it comes to the left or concepts like the Great Reset. These are nothing more than a convenient, and as Schwab put it, unprecedented opportunity. I guess nothing like a plague to create upside as the left and the elite see it. Now, here's another uh, gem from Schwab. The moment must be seized to take advantage of this unique opportunity. And another thought from the godfather of Davos, for those fortunate enough, and I'm paraphrasing here, the crisis was not only more bearable, but even a source of profitable opportunity at a time of distress for the majority. How about that? Could be uh, any more explicit. I don't think he could be in defining the haves and the have-nots. 
the 1% from the 99%. Now, what would some of the tactics or telltale signs be of the great reset in action? Well, what I call as a bad form of ESG, the subjective scoring of businesses under a socialist or leftist filter, that would be a big one. Do we see that today more than ever? Yep, we sure do. Or maybe equating climate risk to business risk, which is also quite popular these days among the bureaucratic elite and expert classes. Heck, the entire stakeholder capitalism concept of today is perhaps the biggest example. It's a model that coerces businesses to align with or collude or follow the state's lead, which sounds a lot like central planning and socialism. Perhaps it even sounds a lot like communism in China. And speaking of, in many ways, Schwab and the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset, they all advocate for the West to forcibly change from free market and individualistic and capitalistic to something more along the lines of China's form of communism. That's frightening, but looking at Davos and the Great Reset objectively, it's not a huge leap in logic to land there. Ask yourself if today's federal government and the current bureaucratic state feel more like American capitalism or if they feel more like socialism. And are climate change and pandemic being viewed in a clinically objective lens? Or instead, are they feeling like convenient opportunities to force change and limit free will? Do you think the CCP is pleased with Western elites' approach so far to tackling climate change and flattening the COVID infection curve? I think the Communist Party in China is quite pleased, which may tell you all one needs to know. Yeah, now that you are informed on the Great Reset, how about we connect to an example of how it can play out? Not so much on the global, since those examples are more obvious, but let's focus on something more on the local or regional level. How about we turn our attention to a state that is all about the Great Reset, which is California. I was out there in early June, and I gave a speech at the LA Lincoln Club, which I wrote about, and you can now read on nickdelius.com, and then I will spend some time next episode discussing a bit more in depth. I think you'll enjoy that. But while I was out there in Southern California, I heard about an issue in state that is a great example of the Great Reset in action. And it deals with, of all things, a tree, specifically the famous Joshua tree found in the desert, places like the Mojave. Now, the popular descriptor of the situation in the news out there in California was that this is a dispute between housing and the environment. People want to build homes and live in areas where the tree is found. And environmentalists want those areas off limits to development to supposedly protect the Joshua tree. But it gets interesting. First, the Joshua tree is not endangered. In fact, it's thriving. People in arid spots of Southern California, they plant them in their yards as landscaping everywhere. The federal government refused to grant it endangered status because it's far from endangered. It's plentiful. Even the California Department of Fish and Wildlife calls the Joshua tree abundant and widespread using their words. But those are facts. And if facts stop a state's version of the Great Reset to go into action, the facts be damned. California lawmakers, including the governor, introduced the bill to protect the tree and that would stop housing developments. What's the rationale? That even though the trees are thriving, they'll soon be facing extinction due to climate change that is looming. Ah yes, the ultimate boogeyman once again. So I chuckled when a news story uh, reported on a professor from a California university who said his research found that the Joshua tree will face habitat problems by the end of the century due to climate change. 
Now, that type of hokey research is out there everywhere these days. And adding insult to injury is the so-called research of this type, which is used to take value and property from taxpayers. It's got to be paid for by the same taxpayers. And that since 40% of the Joshua tree grows on private land, the state needs to prevent that private land from being developed to save those 40% of the trees. Wow, a precedent that can then be used, frankly, to take any private land for just about any fabricated purpose. You see, this connection is not really about the popular byline the media puts out there of housing versus environment. It's instead a battle between the individual's rights to access to property and that of government's power, under cover, of course, of the shade of the Joshua tree. It's the Great Reset in action, looking for any issue as opportunity to tighten the state's grip little by little, tree by tree, and house by house. Well, I got to stop right there. We cannot talk about the Joshua Tree on this podcast and not connect to the album, The Joshua Tree, from one of my favorite bands, U2. The band uh, started recording that album this month back in 1986. To this day, probably viewed by most as the band's biggest success and best-known album. And a couple of band members, Edge for sure, maybe Bono, I'm not sure about him, but I know that the Edge owns property in Southern California, not far from the Joshua Tree's habitat. Uh, Not in the desert. I think the edge is out there in Malibu on the coast. And here's what's interesting about that album and how it ties to what we've been discussing with the Great Reset and government interventions into the individual's domain with things like the real Joshua Tree issue in Southern California. It's what falls into, I think we talked about this maybe last week or two episodes ago, it's what falls into that ever-expanding and largest of our middle categories since we've been doing these episodes which is that category labeled as ironic. When the band first recorded the album in 1986, it sort of made America its central theme, and the band was looking to contrast two versions of America. There was the real America and mythical America. And if you listen to a lot of the songs on that album and that contrast, you'll hear it painted across all kinds of different verses and lyrics. Now, that's the ironic part because the contrast that the band was painting of the two Americas in 1986, it has switched and changed quite a bit here in 2023. Back then in 1986, the real America was capitalism and the Darwinian free market and being work-focused, perhaps spoiled kids in consumerism, and I guess an America that clinically looked after its own self-interests abroad. And then the mythical America back then was everyone having a shot at the American dream, so to speak, and where maybe perhaps America displayed more empathy. But again, today, things have uh, flipped a bit, uh, quite different with respect to what's going on, because the real America today is all about that work-life balance. It's not work first. America's interests are not pursued in our foreign policy. To the contrary, they're often undermined by our foreign policy. Capitalism is fading. What's it being replaced with? Socialism. Uh, The free market is now in just about every major sector of the economy overwhelmed by state-controlled markets. Yeah, just think about it. You've got banking and energy, healthcare, uh, transportation, tech, and on and on it goes. Spoiled children, they're now students of the nanny state looking for that next microaggression. And consumerism, it's now replaced with a policy-instituted scarcity. And the individual, free to do what they choose, that's been swapped with what is a person's 
of sort of leisure being set and determined by the state and by government. I won't go so far as to say the American dream is dead, but that mythical America that you two wrote an album about, I don't think it's gone. But I am certain that the dream is harder to achieve and to see each day today than it was in 1986 when the Joshua Tree was being created. And I did mention that uh, Edge owns some property or owns some property in Malibu. A few years back, um, he was in a long-standing legal battle. It went on for years and years with locals and regulators and environmentalists and zoning over his plans to basically build on a plot of land that he owned in Malibu. Now, I guess things sometimes come full circle. He had the Joshua Tree album to capture the ideal of America's open spaces. That was a huge success. The commercial success of the album led to the ability of band members to acquire land holdings in Malibu. The individual and free market spirit of America, that sort of helped catalyze Edge's plans for his property. But then here comes the left and a concerted pushback looking to stop his ability to do with his property what he desires. As I said, the far middle's largest category of topics falls under that filing cabinet label of irony. Look, all is not bleak in these United States, okay? There is hope regarding our ability to rebut the threat of the Great Reset. Why? Because the individual and the human condition, they naturally desire free will and freedom to choose. They're in our collective species DNA. The Great Reset will fail in the end. It's just a question of how far it goes before it fails. You know, but that detail regarding how long or to the extent or length of runway before course correction it's crucial to the pain and damage it inflicts along the way. And that connects to our last topic to discuss before we put a bow on episode 112. That is an event that, shall we say, dusted up this week back in 1794 with the first shots being fired. The event was the Whiskey Rebellion in Western Pennsylvania. It was the first time the federal government of the United States looked to tax a domestic product. In this case, it was whiskey. It didn't go over well at first with the farmers in Western Pennsylvania, and it led to an insurrection that centered itself actually just minutes from where I sit, actually right across the street from where I went to high school. And it was the first test of President Washington's young presidency. And let me summarize what was going on and draw parallels to today to that great reset. So the federal government needed to fund the cost of the recent Revolutionary War. It had a debt problem today. Our government has a bigger debt problem to the tune of 30 plus trillion dollars and growing by the minute. Um, Back then, whiskey was a form of currency in many ways, the lifeblood of the young American economy. Remember, we were agrarian based and whiskey kept longer than wheat, rye or corn. So farmers, they converted their crop into the spirit and they used it as effectively a form of currency. Much like energy is the lifeblood of our economy today and government looks to tax it and everything tied to it. So farmers in Western Pennsylvania, they became upset because they felt the whiskey tax unfairly targeted them with the benefits of the tax going to other regions or stakeholders. Today, flyover country feels the same type of selective burden being applied with federal policies to the benefit of the elite. And another grievance was found within the distillers of the whiskey. Western smaller distillers felt the tax was designed to favor the larger eastern ones, because you could elect to pay either a flat fee or a per gallon fee. And the larger Eastern players, they were able to pay the flat fee 
and they moved on, gaining competitive advantage over smaller Western players who could not afford the flat fee and paid the per gallon fee. Does that sound familiar with today's banking or energy policies that enriched the mega corporation to the detriment of the smaller upstart? And distillers had to have their stills registered. And if you didn't have one registered, you had to travel all the way to Philadelphia um, to basically answer to the federal government, which was no small task back then in the late 1700s. And think of today's comparison to the Byzantine maze of regulations for banks and for FDA approval and energy permits and how, again, they favor the big and the elite. Yes, constant listeners, we've always had a flyover country, and there's always been an unsteady, I'll call it, equilibrium between individual freedom and government control. And the administrative state always looks to find ways to procure funding. This nation's history is built upon finding the right balance between these things and to avoid imbalance that favors the control of the state over the individual, like the Great Reset. Let's make sure we do our part in that process of civil discourse, without shots being fired, of course, to ensure the America of 2023, it finds its proper balance quicker and less violently than the America of 1794. So enjoy a bourbon or whiskey this evening or weekend and think about how much of its cost was tax and what the levels of government approvals needed to occur to get the drink in front of you to enjoy. And while you're thinking that over, it will be time for episode 113 next week before you know it.